So last week, we were talking, and Frank mentioned the, uh, the mystic class, and, and so that kicked up a little um, silt on the bottom of the aquarium because uh, of the word mystic, and it's, it's a word that has been very difficult for a lot of Christians to be able to deal with because of the connotations of it. And so we spent last week kind of going through that. What a mystic is, what it isn't, what a contemplative is, what a contemplative is not, what we mean by contemplation, since we teach uh, contemplative spirituality here. And what we came up with as a basic definition is that a mystic or a contemplative is someone who believes that you can't know God intellectually. You can't know God rationally or verbally. God is way too big. God is infinite. There is no way that we can get our minds around God. That doesn't mean that we throw out rational study. It doesn't mean that we throw out theology. Those are pointers that point us and lead us toward a nonverbal and non-rational experience of God. Because even though we can't understand God rationally with our minds, we can experience him with our hearts. And so functionally, a contemplative is someone using silence and solitude and nonverbal prayer, non-rational prayer, to bring him or herself into God's presence and have nothing in between. As soon as we think about something, we objectify it, we take a little separation from it. The idea here is to be completely one with, in the moment with. And so the bias against, as we talked about last week, was that what it seems to those who are really focused on sola scriptura, that scripture alone is what reveals um, God's nature to us, that this mystical practice or this contemplative practice is creating a second source of revelation that could be in conflict with or actually negate the impact of the scriptures. And of course, from our point of view, nothing could be further from the truth. Everything that we do and everything that we are about, we want it to be completely scripturally based. But scripture understood from that first century Hebrew point of view, from their context. And in their context, as we looked at last week, the Bible is full of mystical events, mystical experiences, and contemplative prayer as well. And we went through a lot of those uh, examples so we could see and we could maybe get comfortable with the fact that there is nothing to be afraid of when we talk about these practices. Now, Jesus gave us the, the perfect balance if you think about it, he assiduously followed the law, really was, a, was a, a perfect Jew. Otherwise, the Pharisees wouldn't have had anything to do with him, you know, because he was a follower of the law. He was someone who followed all the ritual practices. He was a student of the scripture. He knew the scriptures inside and out, could quote them fluently, could read them. And that was not an easy task for first century Pal- uh, people living in Palestine or the Galilee. And so all of that, but at the same time, He called his father Abba, which was a term that children used, the intimate, familiar, beloved term for their daddy, as Ima was for mommy. And and so he was alluding to, in his very language, and the, the word that he used, probably inappropriately from that point, from the that that culture's point of view, the intimacy and the connection the vulnerability, the transparency, the openness that he had with his father. To be able to say that I and the father are one, right? That I don't do anything that the father doesn't do through me. We, we just breathe together and we act together. So here is this balance that Jesus is showing us between being a student of the scripture and a follower of the law and ritual practice and at the same time, this intimate connection with his Abba. 
When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, do you remember what he said? If you don't, take a look at Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And when Jesus says the law and the prophets, what he means is that the Hebrew scriptures, their Bible, which they call Tanakh, um, is broken up into three sections. The first is the Torah. And that's the first five books in the law. The second is the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And the third is the Ketuvim, which is the, the writings. So it would be uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. When he talks about the law and the prophets, those were the two primary sections of Jewish scripture that comprised everything that was the, about their halakha, their, their walk, their daily walk with God. So he's saying all of that, all of that scripture, that body of scripture is summed up right here. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. It starts at 6.4, the most famous prayer in all of Israel. Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you will love your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And so he's quoting what they already know. But he's bringing it home in a way that is really on point here. He's trying to get them to understand something. How is it that we love God with our heart, our mind, and our soul. What he's alluding to is that we are loving God with everything that it means to be human. The rational mind, the mind, the egoic mind, the mind that thinks and calculates and plans, we're loving him with that. We're loving him by studying. We're loving him by learning. We're loving him by trying to understand the workings and the way that we work as a community. But it goes beyond that. The soul being the seat of the emotion and the heart being the seat, the essence of all choice and action and volition. And so everything that we're about, all of our emotions, all of our thoughts, our rational, non-rational activities as a human being, and our actions, he says, that is everything that you bring to bear if you're going to really love God. And that's what they understood that these laws were supposed to be written on our hearts. They're supposed to become who we were. And so the question is, well, how do we do that? How do we love God with everything that it means to be a human being? Well, that's where he brings in the second commandment. And he says the second commandment is like the first, even though he's quoting now Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how does that connect to the first commandment? How is it like the first? Well, how do we love ourselves, really? I remember C.S. Lewis saying, well, come to think of it, I don't have any sentimentality toward myself, you know, affection for myself, but I feed myself and I clothe myself and I educate myself and I keep a roof over my head, so I take care of my needs. But beyond that, think about it. What do you prize in your life? What do you work so hard for in your life every waking moment? See, I think if you really get down to the bottom of the dog pile, if you really drill down, what we want is freedom. We want the freedom to be able to choose. We want the freedom to be able to buy what we want to buy and sell what we want to sell. And we want the freedom to marry who we want to marry and work where we want to work and play where we want to play and love where we want to love. We want the freedom of choice to really be able to do that. And we work our lives to get that freedom in whatever way we think that we can do that. 
through our jobs and through everything else that we do, through our religion, through our spirituality. What we're looking for is that freedom. So how we really love ourselves is by trying to set ourselves free. And so if we're going to love God or love others, Jesus says we do it the same way. These two commandments are like each other. They mirror each other. So freedom has something to do with this. I mentioned before that uh, Marion has become the bird lady. <laughs> we have this backyard. Since we moved here to uh, San Clemente, we have this backyard. There's kind of hardscapes and lots of trees. And there was a fountain. We've never had a fountain before. This thing is cool. It's like four dishes that kind of pour into each other. So you get the sound. And, of course, the water is there. And so Marion started buying these socks. They weren't really socks, but they're... Uh, cloth thing filled with finch seed and she'd hang those on the trees and boy once those guys found that stuff they were just all over it and then she got the hummingbird feeders so there's like three or four of those hanging from different trees and then of course we got the water there so we got the food we got the water we got everything and we became Disneyland for the birds in our neighborhood and they started showing up and it was so cool I mean you could just sit there and you just watch them you know and you start to get your, your favorites but of course the finches are coming of all different types and colors and the sparrows are coming, of course, and then the hummingbirds are there, which are just the most incredible critters. I mean, I just could watch them forever and watch those guys. And then you get the other bigger birds and different birds, and then the doves would come. And you start to get your favorites, right? Of course, everybody's favorite is a hummingbird. We love to watch the hummingbirds. But the doves are so cool. I grew up with morning doves, and I can still hear that sound you know, from my childhood. But I remember a couple of doves landing, and of course, the the deal is they're supposed to mate for life. And so you just imagine, here's this mated pair, and they're so cute. And they do a lot of walking because it takes a lot, I guess, to get those bodies off the ground. So they land, and they're just walking around, and then they finally hop up onto the fountain, or they do whatever they do. But then there was this bird that showed up. It was jet black. It was bigger, something like this, and had these fire engine red wings or bands across the wing. No idea what kind of bird this was, but this thing was amazing. And I was sitting there, I'm looking at this bird, and I'm watching everything that's going on. And this thought went through my head. Wouldn't it be cool just to put a big net over our backyard and create this aviary, you know? Just take a snapshot when all the favorite birds, everyone is there, you know, and just throw this net over. And then you'd have those birds all the time, you know? And I was thinking this for about eight and a half seconds. And the next thought came in. It's just like... If I were to create this aviary, suddenly I'm responsible for all these birds. I gotta feed them. I gotta clean up after them. I can't take a vacation without getting someone over to feed the birds and take care of my birds. But then the next thought hit me, which was even more on point for us. And it's that if I were to do that, the moment that I create the aviary, I would know exactly what birds were gonna be there every time I looked. There wouldn't be the surprise of a new bird showing up. There wouldn't be the days when the birds didn't show up and you wondered where they went or what you did wrong or why they don't write or send flowers anymore, you know, after all we did for them. But all the wonder would have been gone. The excitement would have been gone. When that black bird showed up with those red wings and it just took my breath away, that would never happen again because I'd know where he was each time. To create the snapshot to try to set in stone even the best moment kills it from a human point of view. Because now we've taken away the freedom. 
When a bird shows up in our yard, it's because that bird wanted to show up in our yard and for no other reason. Obviously, we have some attractions there for him, but he chose to be there. Nothing was coerced. He just freely showed up and gave us his presence. If we make them prisoners, something changes. Think about that as our overarching metaphor here this morning. Don't we do the same thing to life? Don't we? Don't we have one of those perfect moments and we just want to bottle it and put it on the shelf and be able to just reproduce it every single day? And maybe that didn't even occur yet, but we have it in our mind. This is what a perfect moment looks like. This is what the perfect circumstances and marriage and job and everything looks like. And I just want that. And I, I just want to hang on to that and have that here in my aviary, under the net, you know, all set up for myself. And then we judge every other moment by that moment, you know. It always reminds me of this line from a movie, and I know I've said it in here before, but if you haven't heard it, it's a uh, father and son sitting early morning at the, at the dining room table, and the father's saying to, to the grown son, he's saying, wow, sometimes, you know, in the family, everything just comes together. Everybody's employed. Everybody's well. Nobody's sick. Everybody's happy and getting together. Everything comes into focus. And his son looks at him and says, Dad, this is not one of those moments. <laughs> But we try to do that. But if we could somehow do that, and of course we can't, you know, it would kill exactly in the same way all the wonder of having things flow through our lives the way that they do. You know? And of course it's exhausting to try to continue to project that, to keep that, to hold on to that one moment as you judge it against all the ones that seem less than. And don't we do the same thing to our relationships as well? Don't we try to mold the other person, whether it's a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a son, a daughter, a sister, whoever it is in your life, a roommate, mold them into who we think that they should be. Of course, that's a mirror of us, right? We want them to think like us and act like us and care about the same things that we care about in the same way. And we try to create that snapshot and throw a net over it and hold it in place. What does that do to the relationships when we think that way, when we try to live that way? and that exhausting amount of energy that has to be expended. A while back, uh, I was talking to someone, and he was having trouble in his marriage, and he just said emphatically, you know, kind of whistling past the graveyard, of course, but he said, divorce is not an option. You know, and you can applaud him for that, for that sense of commitment that he's going to make this thing work. But the truth of the matter is, of course, divorce is an option. Divorce is always an option. And if we start to think about a spouse who is not capable of leaving, who is not empowered to leave in any way, then we've done the same thing that we've done to our life or done to the birds as we try to throw a net over it. A spouse who cannot leave is a spouse that will be taken advantage of, taken for granted, even held in contempt. The fact that we are freely giving our lives to each other, even under the umbrella of a social contract, is what gives marriage its value. Now, don't go away saying that Dave is talking divorce is okay. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is think about it. It's the freedom of a person to say, I choose you. I am going to fly into your backyard today. I am going to fly into your life for the next 40 years. That has value. If it's coerced in any way, it does not. And then we try to do the same thing to God, don't we? 
We try to throw a net over God, put God in the aviary. We try to do it through our theology, through our understanding of doctrine, or the doctrine the church has given us. And we've done it through the use of Scripture itself. For the past 1,500 years in the West, the church has focused on doctrine and on theology that the church imposed on the people as the exact description of the Godhead and the description of God's nature. And in the last 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, to get out from under all of those traditions, the Protestant churches have used Scripture as the be-all and end-all, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And that has become the net that we throw over God. But in all our attempts to control God, in all our attempts to feel more secure in a really crazy world, what are we doing to this relationship that we have with God? Now, what does the book tell us? How are we supposed to be approaching this relationship with God? Take a look again at your, um, at your inserts or up on the screens. I pulled three tiny little passages there are scads of them. If you actually go through the Bible and look for everywhere in the Bible that talks about the fact that God is too big for us to be able to put in any kind of aviary, to be put in any kind of thought process, yeah, you'll, you'll, have a, a, you'll have a long session. But take a look at Ecclesiastes 8, starting at verse 16. I tried to understand all that happens on earth. I saw how busy people are, working day and night and hardly ever sleeping. I also saw all that God has done. Nobody can understand what God does here on earth. No matter how hard people try to understand it, they cannot. Even if wise people say they understand, they cannot. No one can really understand it. And if you're looking at the screens, I know it's very different. This is a new century version, but I thought this one captured the sense of it you know, more. Take a look at Job 11, starting in verse 7. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Beautiful Jewish poetry. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Both Testaments are full of this type of imagery. And what they're pointing to is that God is ineffable. Ineffable. It's a word that means something that is beyond words. (laughs) A word that means something is beyond words. How about that? God is just too big, too broad, too infinite to be able to be captured in words. And this is what the Bible is trying to tell us. Why? Because it was written by people who lived their relationship with this God. And then they were trying to put something into words. But what good are these words if they're telling us that we can't put it into words, huh? How are we supposed to process all of that? Where are we going with this? This is what we're trying to take a look at. This book, this Bible, is trying to allow God to be free, absolutely free. How does it do it? It does it by using words in a particular way. I want to read just a few paragraphs from a couple of articles. This first one, Understanding the Writing of the Prophets, I think is going to help us here. First thing he says is, The prophets were poets. God spoke through his prophets largely in poetic form. The prophets often used what may be called poetic prose. 
a special formal style employing the same characteristics as poetry, though less consistently, but so much more regular and stylized than colloquial prose. All the prophetic books contain a substantial amount of poetry, and several are exclusively poetic. As a matter of fact, poetry is the second most common literary feature and comprises almost one-third of the Bible. That number is hotly contested. I have seen other scholars say that it's as much as 75% of the Bible is actually poetry. There's a lot of poetry in the Bible that doesn't look like poetry to us because Jewish poetry doesn't have regular meter, doesn't rhyme, and so it often sounds much more like prose to our ears. And then often it's not put into verse form in whatever translation you may be reading in English. So you don't even know when you're reading poetry necessarily. But somewhere between one-third and three-quarters, who knows? There's a lot of poetry in the Bible. The language of poetry is imagery. Remember we talk about the ancient peoples being epic, just as our newest generations are epic? And epic stands for experiential, participatory, image-based, and communal. Not rational, not word-based, not effable. Epic is ineffable. Epic is trying to get arms and, and hearts around something that has to be experienced firsthand. And so imagery is the language of poetry. It's designed to stir the emotions and create vivid mental pictures, but not feed the intellect. Consequently, poetry uses devices such as simile, metaphor, personification, and hyperbole to create images that evoke a sensory experience in our imagination. It is therefore important that we are able to identify and interpret the devices of poetic language. Poetry must be read, understood, and interpreted as poetry. There is a saying that a poet is a prophet, and this saying has great significance and hidden meaning. There is no doubt that although poetry is not necessarily prophecy, prophecy is born in poetry. If one were to say that poetry is a body that is adopted by the spirit of prophecy, it would not be wrong. Interesting. Wagner said that noise is not necessarily music. And the same thing can be said about poetry. A verse written in rhyme and meter is not necessarily true poetry. Poetry is an art, a music expressed in the beauty and harmony of words. No doubt, much of the poetry one reads is meant either as a pastime or for amusement, but real poetry comes from the dancing of the soul. No one can make the soul dance unless the soul itself is inclined to dance. Also, no soul can dance which is not alive. In the Bible, it is said that no one will enter the kingdom of God whose soul is not born again. Being born again means being alive. It is not a happy disposition or an external inclination to merriment and pleasure that is the sign of a living soul. External joy and amusement may come simply through the external being of human beings. However, even in this outer joy and happiness, there is a glimpse of the inner joy and happiness, and that is a sign of the soul having been born again. How does the Bible use words to point to something that is ineffable? This is it. These literary styles that evoke, that bring us into, allow us to reverberate with, to, to resonate with the experience that they had. It connects to the experiences that we've had. 
Whenever you read something that's true, it's going to reverberate with you. You probably heard people say, when you share in a group, don't worry about what, if it's relevant or not. If you share something that's authentic, it's going to find its place in people's hearts. It will always. The Word of God is ultimately true. never comes back void. But we have to read it in a certain way so that we can resonate with that. In our fear, we want edges to hold on to. We want to create those defined edges. We want to distinguish this from that and that from this so that we have some security, so that we have some sense of control. The thing that we can name, the thing that we can categorize, the thing that we can describe, and especially the thing that we can digitize, it's ours now. We own it. We control it. We can do whatever we want with it. And that makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves in a scary world. But when it comes to God, all of that effort to try to do so is wasted. And even worse, it takes us completely away from the journey that Jesus is trying to get us to take with him. God has no edges. God is completely infinite. Something that is infinite can't be measured. Something that is infinite has no degree. It has no way to differentiate it from something else. It is what it is. God, Yahweh, from the burning bush, I am that I am. I am that I am. That's the best that he could do in words to try to give Moses a name that he could then take to the people. Poetry, music, art, dance, all have no edges. They're all nonverbal. And the way that we experience them is non-rational. They can express the infinite much more closely than words can, than prose can. And of course, the question is, why? Because they allow God to remain free. God can stay free. This is a way that we can love God as we love ourselves. We want to be free to make our choices When we really love another person, we let them be free to make their choices. And we love God in exactly the same way. Not that God is going to be changed by our notions of him, but to let him be free to be who he is in the experience that we're having of him right here and right now is loving God with everything that it means to be a human being. And so scripture through stories and parables, songs, poems, visions... Even mystical experiences and mystical writing are creating this immersive experience, this elusive, evocative, emotional experience, and a point of connection for us. If we have ears to hear and we see what these inspired authors are doing in the pages of Scripture, then we realize that we, in the reading of this, can become inspired readers of the inspired writings, and then everything starts to connect. And for the Hebrews, this was natural, because the Hebrews always looked at function over form, how something functioned rather than what it looked like, always. You know, the shorthand for me is if we were going to describe a pencil, if I'm holding it up to you and say, describe this pencil, you know, we would say, okay, well, it's about six inches long, it's skinny, it's yellow, it's got a pointy thing on one side, and it's got this little rubber thing on the other side. You ask a Jew to describe a pencil, what do they say? You write with it. That's it. Notice that there's no descriptions of Jesus. We want to know what Jesus looked like. It wasn't important to the Jewish mind. The Jewish mind puts everything down about how Jesus functioned. 
the end of the Gospels, Jesus went about doing good things. That's it. That's the description that we get. He went about doing good things. And so the scripture was not meant to describe God to the last detail, to give us the exact nature that we crave as modern Westerners and that our theology has tried to deliver, but to show how he moves through our lives. What is the nature of that movement? How does he function in our lives? And, of course, the Jews had that coined in their language as well, ruach, or in Aramaic, rucha, which means spirit, but it means breath and wind at the same time, all three, defined by their motion. If breath isn't moving, you're dead. If wind isn't moving, it's not wind. And if spirit isn't in motion, then it's not God. It has to be in motion. This is a criteria that they were bringing to it. And so if we try to throw this net over God to stop the movement of God as God moves through our lives, to hold that frozen, God no longer exists as God in our lives. And this is what the genius of the inspired writers of Scripture are trying to show us. We can't do that and experience our God. What's the first commandment? Let's read it. Exodus 20, starting at verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. No other gods before me. Don't make any graven image. Don't draw a picture. Don't make a statue. Nothing. And if you think about where the Jews came from, they came from Egypt. After centuries in Egypt, as the people who had then adopted the the Egyptian form of religion, the Egyptian pantheon of gods became their gods. Did you know that each one of the ten plagues of Egypt was directed at a different god of Egypt that the people were connected with, that the people went to to try to change their circumstances superstitiously. And each one of those was to show Yahweh's power over that particular God. We don't get that. We just know about the frogs and the flies and everything, but they were connected to these deities that the Hebrews had adopted. God is taking them out of the aviary. He's taking them out from under that net. He's freeing them to connect with the God of Abraham. And Abraham's genius was to understand God as one ineffable being that he could talk with and walk with and even sit and eat with as the imagery goes in the stories of Abraham and all the theophanies. But he couldn't describe. It's a very different kind of, of, of connection. So what happens, though, by Exodus 32. This is Moses going up to Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments, of which we've just heard the first one. There's nine more. He has the tablets that were actually written by the finger of God. And he comes down the mountain. And at Exodus 32, starting in verse 1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from, he took this from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So what was the sin of the Hebrews? What did they do? They were led out of slavery, out of the aviary, into the trackless wilderness where God could fully be God. Assume his full proportions in their lives. But when Moses tarries up in the 40 days and 40 nights on the top of the mountain, they get fearful again, and they regressed back to needing to put edges around their God. Even though Aaron still calls him the same God, it's still Yahweh. But now they have an image. They have this calf, you know, which is aggression and going back to the previous form of worship. They lost their nerve. It's hard to live with an ineffable God. Don't you want some edges? Don't you want to know who God is? We all want that. But the only way that we can experience him fully in relationship is to give him the freedom to be exactly who he is. Moses liberated, the people came back. And of course, Moses, is in his anger, breaks the first set of tablets. Wouldn't you wish those were still around someplace? Of course, that would be more edges now, wouldn't it? <laughs> but we've got to be careful here not to over-literalize this particular story either. Because we want to think of it just in terms of a statue or just in terms of some physical idol. But what the first commandment is really talking about is any graven image, even if it's just mental, even if it's just a notion that we have of our God. The edges that we create in our mind, that snapshot, that, that, that set, dead, stagnant image of God can never represent who God is. And if we're fixated on that, then we're looking for the living among the dead. Just as the women were looking for Jesus in the graveyard, he's not there. He's not going to be there. He's going to be in motion. He's going to be somewhere else. You know, This is what we have to start to think about, that this is for here, for us, for now, because we can fall into exactly the same trap through our fear of wanting to have edges that we can hold on to. If we're going to love God with everything that it means to be human, the only way to do this is to love God as we love ourselves, giving God the freedom to be exactly who he is at this moment. And the irony is, even though we want in our fear to grab onto some edges, it's only in granting freedom to any other person in our lives or to the circumstances that we find ourselves in to be exactly what they are, that we actually feel alive. That's when we feel alive. It's when we just let things be who they are. Just kind of quickly in closing, I want to tell you about a road trip that I took. This was August of 1977, so it goes back a day or two, right? I had spent the previous year on tour with a group called Up With People, and I befriended a couple there who fell in love on the tour 
13-month tour. And um, the year later, they decided to get married. And so Gary asked me to be his best man. He was from Denver. She was from Dothan, Alabama. If you don't know where that is, it's right down in the southeastern corner, just a biscuit from the, from the Florida panhandle. And, um, and so the, uh, the idea was that they were going to get married in August. I was living with my parents uh, temporarily in Santa Barbara, and I had just gotten this little Mazda truck, a little pickup with a camper shell, you know? And like we did back in the 70s, it, the bed was covered with thick foam and shag carpet orange about that thick. You know, and uh, I was bringing a drum set back. I was going back to I was going to school in Chicago, so I was bringing a drum set back that a friend of mine wanted to sell to someone else. Was there boxes of stuff? I finally had the vehicle where I could bring some of my stuff because I was living just out of a suitcase and a guitar case uh, for the first semester I was there. So I'm bringing all this stuff back, and so I was going to take the 15 up to the 70 and go to Denver, meet Gary there, and then the two of us were going to drive the rest of the way to Dothan, and we could trade off and do all this stuff. So I. Take off and I get there, and there is this monster rainstorm. I mean, absolute deluge. The entire 15 was closed off for 24 hours, and I was stuck there. And I was trying to sleep in the back, and then I realized the camper shell is leaking. So in comes the water, it's soaking into the carpet, the drum set, the cardboard boxes with all my stuff for school, and it's 1977. You think there's an iPhone anywhere on the horizon? I don't think so. So I couldn't call anybody. I was stuck out in the middle of nowhere. Just everything shut down on this highway. And so as soon as it clears up and I get to go, I'm driving. But by the time I get to Denver and I get to Gary's apartment, there's a little note taped on his door that he freaked out, panicked, and took a flight to to Dothan. So here I am. I have been, I haven't slept in, I don't know, 48 hours you know, two and a half, three days, something like that, really. And now I don't have anyone to take over the driving as I continue. And I've lost a day besides. So um, the summer before, I had been in Seattle with some friends. And I met this girl there who said that she was from Hayes, Kansas. And as I'm looking on the map, guess what? 70 goes right through Hayes. So go to a phone booth. Phone booths. Hey, there's a new thing. And phone books. And I look her up and I find her and I call her. I say, can I just crash on your couch? Yeah. So I get to Hayes. I sleep overnight and then I get back on the road. I get to Memphis the day after Elvis's funeral. All the biker gangs are coming in everything. I had to come and just get off the road and, and just drive up and down Elvis Presley Boulevard. Couldn't find Graceland, but at least I was there. And then on down to Dothan. I got there Friday night at about 11.30, midnight. Had missed the rehearsal dinner. Just in time for them to take him out bar hopping until 4 o'clock in the morning. And I still haven't slept in about four days. And then the wedding was the next morning, I think, at 11 or something like that. So I got about three hours sleep, and then we did the wedding. Then up that night until late with the parties and everything. And then Gary and Yoli took off, and I slept until Tuesday morning. <laughs> From Saturday night to Tuesday morning, the family told me later they thought I had died, and they kept checking. I think they were putting a mirror under my nose or something. I stayed there for several days just to recoup, and then I drove to Chicago, and I'm just in the outskirts of Chicago in the middle of the cornfields, and I see something in the road, and so I just kind of, you know, I thought it was a piece of rubber from a from a retread or something. I hit this thing, just clipped it with my tire. It makes this god-awful noise under my car. So I think, oh, i got to get gas anyway. So I get off. I'm pouring gas in. It's coming out the bottom just as fast as going to the top. It had ripped a hole in my gas tank, but they were able to patch it. And I find, okay, think about this. Everything I tried to do in that trip went wrong. 
everything went sideways. You know, I can't tell you that I experienced it all, all that well. There are a few choice words that I had to say at certain times. But 40 years later, I remember that trip and I can tell it to you like it happened yesterday. I can close my eyes and I can still see some of that. And it is one of my most cherished memories. Do you have a trip like that? Do you have an event like that? Do you have a wedding like that, maybe? Weddings can go sideways. Think about it. It's the things that we can't predict and that we don't control that become the most cherished parts of our lives. And if you think about your relationships, it's the quirky things that people do. It's the non-standard things that people do that make them so precious to us. Those are the things that we cherish Even the things that annoy us while they're doing them later on, we remember fondly afterwards. The irony is that we spend all our time trying to control everything. And the things that we can control are the things that we don't value with time. Just like the birds, if I could keep them prisoner in my yard, I would not value them the way I do when they just show up on their own wing. When a person or a bird or a circumstance is free to go anywhere and chooses you, chooses me, that's priceless. Absolutely priceless. And we kill all meaning as soon as we throw a net over anything that we're trying to control. Jesus and all the prophets are telling us, this is what they're saying in absolute unison, let go of the edges Let go of your need and your fear that tries to grab onto something and define the heck out of it. Let God just play through your life. Let God move so that we can understand that he is our God. And please understand, they're telling us, that faith and trust are not based in intellectual understanding. They're based in the practice of presence and the practice of presence alone. Go there, they're telling us. Go there. Because what you'll find there will redefine your God for you in a way that you will not be able to put into words, but you will know that you will know that you will know that everything will be okay and that the gospel is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bad road trips. Thank you for the unexpected. Thank you for the things that go sideways. Thank you for the things that create the adventure in our lives. Thank you for the birds that just land somewhere where we get to watch them for just a few seconds. And it's so meaningful to be present when the bird lands, when the relationship comes. And when your spirit blows through our lives in a way that we can feel and touch and know. Help us to value those things mentally so that we can go after them experientially. Help us to turn our thoughts around and realize that it's not in anything that looks like control that we find anything that looks like you. We love you, Lord. We want to love you more and more like Jesus, more and more like we love ourselves. Give you the freedom to be exactly who you are in our lives so that we can be free enough to love after. Thank you for everything, Lord. Thank you for doing it first so that we can do it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.